welcome back to the Whale Nerds podcast. This is episode 125. My name is Caitlin and I am flying solo again this week. Uh, This week, I just want to start off by sharing some gratitude, like always. Thank you so much to everyone that is supporting our show, whether that's through Patreon or going on trips or just listening to the podcast, sharing it with others or rating or reviewing the podcast somewhere that you listen to it or subscribing to it that helps other people find the show. So thanks for tagging along with us as we nerd out about whales and things that we love and things that we see. Uh, If you want to keep up with us and what we're seeing, what we're doing, uh, we do have a website. It's thewhalenerds.com. You can learn more about uh, our trips. You can look at our merch. You can look at our blog. Also, we have video versions of our episodes available on YouTube from episode 100 onwards. And we do use social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Whale Nerds. So thanks for keeping up with us. Uh, sightings this week. Since last time I recorded an episode, we've had lots of humpback whales. Still really interesting to see like different whales coming through the area. Uh, we had a few whales that were like first seen in 1990s early 90s and they were in the area this week which is pretty fascinating to see different age cohorts kind of moving around the bay um we had a new mom and calf pair that the mom was documented off the coast of nicaragua at one point so pretty incredible different moms and babies still moving through the bay we have not seen many rissos dolphins we've had a couple sightings of killer whales so i think those two are related um we what else have we had that's been kind of the highlight the killer whales have not been that easy to follow but it sounds like um one time it was the same group as the last time i talked to you and then another time it was a different group so fall is usually the time where they start kind of coming through the bay we did see um, some fur seals and some elephant seals around so lots of pinnipeds in the bay too and Uh, As far as behaviors of humpback whales go, we had lots of surface feeding, lots of feeding with sea lions off and on. It's been pretty good. Seems like everybody's trying to make that final push for feeding effort for hopefully the next month or so. We'll see whales continuing to feed really heavily in Monterey and up and down the California coast. Sounds like kind of similar things are going on. It was interesting to read the access uh, reports they do science sampling off of Cordell Bank and Greater Farallons. They had a lot, notably less whales in their last survey, and so the whales have pushed south a little bit. So maybe that's related to how we're seeing different groups of whales coming through, is because they are shifting around. And uh, the mom and calf pair that was new, we had an incredible encounter with. So we are out on an ash scattering actually. And after the people put the ashes in the water, we uh, took them up to go look at some whales because they'd asked if whales were nearby, if we could go look. And we were hanging out with a few and then one started breaching and we were like, oh, well, this is pretty cool. And so we got caught up to him and it was a mom calf and an escort and the calf breached over and over and over and over again. It was amazing. They were all getting really good cell phone pictures. I took selfies, of course. (laughs) Kate and I got really good photos. We got IDs of all of the whales and yeah, that mom had been seen in Nicaragua before. So pretty cool to be able to make that connection. And so we left that whale, went in, 
got our passengers for our regular whale watch trip and we found the same trio and the calf was still breaching. I timed it, it breached for two hours, like from 8.45 to 10.45 in the morning. It was amazing. And then the next day, I think it was, we were out on an all-day trip. It was really foggy, so we had a hard time getting honed in on whales. Um, but before the end of the trip, we came up on a feeding group, and there was this pair of whales coming into the area, but one of them was breaching. And Kate and I both looked at each other and go, that little whale looks familiar. And then it dove, and we kind of got a good look at the mom. And then we saw the calf's tail, and we are like, oh, it's definitely that calf. So the calf, like, breached around the feeding group a few times. And then they finally came in and like got really focused and the mom and calf were lunge feeding side by side, like really, really consistently for over half an hour. It was pretty incredible to see the calf practicing surface feeding with mom after she got it to settle down. So really cool teaching moment that we got to see. And uh, it was interesting to be able to catch up with them two days in a row. So hopefully they still stick around. We are off the water today for some maintenance. So uh, we'll see what happens, but yeah, really cool stuff. Also on our all day trip on Wednesday, we came across, well, we were driving, just looking around for stuff in the fog. We came across a kelp patty that had something like moving in it. We thought it was a sea lion or something at first. And then we almost were about to drive past it. And we saw a bunch of line in the water. So Kate was able to stop the boat before we could get tangled in it. And we kind of just drifted away from it. And then we realized that the thing moving in the kelp was a common myrrh tangled in all the fishing line that we were seeing in the water. It looked, it was like braided line. So it was really thick and it honestly looked more like white string than it did like your typical fishing line. Cause it was like the spectra stuff that you use for um, really heavy fish. There's been bluefin tuna in the bay um, since the 25th or 26th. And so probably it was from someone trying to catch a tuna because that's the only way I could see why there would be hundreds of yards of this line in the water is that like it got hooked on something it wasn't meant to and they were trolling and they just cut it or the fish broke off or whatever it was but there was hundreds of yards of line of this stuff so initially before we picked up the myrrh we picked up the loose strand because we didn't want to run it over while we were trying to get the myrrh and it took me forever to pull it all in because there was so much it wasn't heavy there was no lure on it there was a couple big snags and like one splice but like it was so much of a mess it was like silly string all over the deck and then we finally got the myrrh on board and it was like the biggest tangle of all time like it it was so horrible luckily the bird was didn't seem like it was tangled too long because it still had really good circulation in its legs, even though its legs were like completely covered in twisted bits of this stuff. So we were able to secure the bird with like some towels and keep it calm, but it probably took 15 or 20 minutes to get it detangled. And we were just cutting and cutting and cutting all this line and untwi untwisting, untwisting. And it was kelp and line on the legs and it was just crazy I can't believe the bird was so good while we detangled it so we got it all cut up cut free there was no cuts on its body from the line we put it in a bucket and covered the bucket so that it would calm down let it rest on some towels and chill out for a while because it's pretty traumatic to get like heaved up on the side of the boat and then be pinned down on the deck to get detangled for 
probably like 45 minutes or something throughout the whole ordeal. So then I called Native Animal Rescue in Santa Cruz and was just like, so we have this myrrh, explained what happened. And I was like, it honestly seems like it hasn't been tangled that long and it's probably fine. But how do I know it's fine before I decide to like put it back in the water? And they said, you know, if the bird's eager to go back in the water and if you feel on the chest and you can't clearly feel the the like breastplate bone, then it's probably fine to go back in the water. But if you can feel the bone, then it means it's underweight. Or if it's disoriented and not eager to go back in the water, then it needs to come into the center. So we didn't want to handle the bird too much anymore, but it felt like it had a lot of weight on it when we were handling it. And later in the trip, after we let it rest for a couple hours, we opened up the back, uh, like the, the door on the transom of the high spirits. And we just tipped the bucket down and it hopped right out, looked at the water, jumped right in the water. So we took that as a good sign. It dove for like 35 seconds. And I was like, oh no, that's it. The bird just drowned. We just killed it like after we tried to save it, but it popped up and it was fine. So <laughs> a little bit of a dramatic exit, but yeah, it seemed, seemed to be okay. Didn't do anything weird. So that was good. Yeah. Quite the exciting day. I think that was one of the most exciting things that happened besides that mom and calf feeding together. So interesting stuff with birds on the high spirits this summer. Uh, so this week to follow up on episodes 117 and 119, we're going to talk a little bit more about recent data published about how fin whales are moving in the Southern hemisphere. Um, the first article we're going to talk about is hot off the press. That's why I wanted to talk about it this week because it came out like eight days ago. Um, so this is first evidence for fin whale migration in the Pacific from Antarctic feeding grounds at Elephant Island. It's in Royal Society Publishing. It was published in September of 2022. Uh, some of the background information on fin whales uh, in the paper that I thought was interesting was that the pre-whaling estimate for Southern Hemisphere fin whales is about 723,000 fin whales. Um, and the whalers did know that the whales moved north to subtropical and tropical waters in the austral winter, but they didn't know how far. So the fin whale, the whalers were most often around the world targeting whales on the feeding grounds because that's when the whales blubber layer is the thickest. It's got the most oil content. It's the best bang for your buck when you look at how much effort it takes to catch a whale versus how much oil you get out of the whale. There are some exceptions, but a lot of times they are targeting whales on their feeding grounds. Um, fin whales in the Southern Hemisphere are actually thought to be a subspecies, which is called Balenoptera physalis koi, I think is how you say it. Um, I found the paper that was talking about this, and it was awesome to see someone's name that I knew as the lead author. Um, Maria Jose Perez Alvarez is one of the lead author authors, and she uh, lived at Hatfield at the same time that I did uh, at Oregon State. So pretty cool to see someone that I spent a summer with. Um, we had a pretty cool thing going with international students that summer. And so we had lots of dinners and kind of fun little nights where we were like speaking this trans like jumbled mess of Greek and Spanish and English and uh, Portuguese <laughs> with all the grad students. And so it's good to see her name on a recent paper because this is what she went to grad school to do and she's still out there doing it. So 
Um, we'll talk more about her research probably on a future episode because uh, there's actually a couple different subspecies potentially of fin whales. And that's being determined. Some of it's by geographic range and um, physical observations, but a lot of it's being determined by genetics. Uh, fin whales do occur in the South Atlantic and the South Pacific. So when the whalers are knowing that the whales are leaving and going north for the winter, they could have gone up either side as they departed the Antarctic Peninsula, the Elephant Island, South Georgia Islands areas. Uh, the study site for this project was the northwest coast of Elephant Island, March and April of 2021. So they just did this uh, like a year and a half ago. They came across 11 different feeding aggregations that were encountered um, during the study period. There were whale group sizes of whales between 25 to 300 individuals. They were able to put out seven satellite tags, but only four transmitted for more than a day. Uh, they ranged from four days to 29 days. All four animals that had tags that transmitted for more than a day remained on the feeding grounds until April 15th. Um, one of the whales, the tag stopped working that day on the 15th, but the remaining three all left the feeding area on the same day, which I think is funny because I always joke on the microphone to people like they don't all synchronize their watches and go, it's October 15th, it's time to swim. Um, but apparently these whales did for April 15th. <laughs> um, two of them went northwest and one went southeast. The whale that went southeast returned to the feeding area several days later and then also started swimming northwest. Um, the, unfortunately, that whale that kind of zigzagged before it kept going northwest, the tag started work stopped working right after that. Uh, the remaining two whales actually crossed the Drake Passage in the span of about five days. They moved up the continental shelf to the coast of Chile, or off the coast of Chile, I should say. The longest tag transmission lasted 29 days, and the whale covered 2,300 kilometers. So it's about 1,429 miles in 16 days. And the whale averaged 144 kilometers a day, about 89 miles a day. Um, that's kind of a pretty average, uh, migration pace. Like humpback whales are about that pace as well. Uh, we say like humpback whales and gray whales, it's like anywhere from like 70 to hundred miles a day, depending on how they do. Um, this is the first evidence of fin whale migration and still the final destination is yet to be revealed. The whale's that were observed in these feeding aggregations do have cookie cutter shark bites, which is suggesting a destination um, above 41 degrees south. So like they're getting quite a ways up the coast because cookie cutter sharks are documented in warmer, like subtropical and tropical waters. So areas like Galapagos, Eastern Island, Guadalupe Island, those regions all have cookie cutter sharks documented and they're in the probable path of the fin whales migration. So those may be areas where these whales are visiting in the wintertime for breeding. Um, there was also some other information included in the paper about a possible breeding ground for fin whales in the Eastern subtropical Pacific, about actually 2,810 kilometers off the Chilean coast. So that's like 1,600 miles offshore. 
Um, and that was suggested based on an opportunistic observation of a large dispersed group of fin whales at the end of May in 2010. Several fin whales that were marked with discovery tags off the Chilean coast during whaling, whaling operations were also later caught in Antarctic waters. So whalers used to put these um, like tags on the whales that could be re, uh, rediscovered during the whale's body processing on a whaling ship. And so that was like a whaler's strategy to track whales. This is way before satellite tags were a thing. This is before satellites were a thing. Um, so it was a way for them to kind of get an idea of like, hey, this tag number was deployed at these coordinates and this is where we caught this whale. And so that would kind of help them plan their timing of their efforts, the locations they should be uh, targeting these whales, things like that to try and better understand the patterns of whales. They weren't totally just shooting from the hip. Like they did have a plan. They did have strategy. They did actually document a lot of this stuff. A lot of the basics that we know about whales is from whaling because they kept meticulous records about what they were catching when and, you know, body size and conditions of the whales, all that stuff. Cause it was relevant to how much money they were going to make. So like they did pretty good science for the information that they had at the time because it was all about maximizing their profit. Uh, let's see. So then there was a discussion also talking about where these whales may go. There's some information in there about uh, fin whales not only using offshore waters, which is pretty typical off the coast of Chile and around the world, but they were also using some coastal habitats. Um, some whales may stay off the coast of Chile year round while others head south for the summer. And there is some evidence from acoustic recordings that indicates the peak of fin whale activity at Elephant Island is from April to June, and it has a very steep decrease starting in July and August. So it does suggest that there's some seasonality in the area. Of course, more work needs to be done. You know, when you can only get seven animals tagged, even though you're in a group of 300, uh, and then only four of those tags really work, and then only three of them work for more than a few days, you know, you got to get more data. And these animals are, you know, potentially 1,600 miles offshore of the nearest port of land. So it's like, how it's expensive to study these things. You know, they're going to some of the harshest waters on our planet, some of the hardest passages of water to trans transit a vessel safely through, let alone try and deploy equipment on a whale, let alone try and keep track of a whale. So more to learn for sure, but pretty interesting to start to shed some light. And it really, at this point, is kind of ground truthing, like what we know so far about where we think fin whales are going. Um, but you really do need to be more precise about where they're going to help better protect them, right? So like that's the end goal. Uh, so the next paper is called Skin Condition of Fin Whales at Antarctic Feeding Grounds Reveals Little Evidence of Anthropogenic Impacts and High Prevalence of Cookie Carter Shark Bite Lesions. Um, this was published recently as well. It was, it, it's in the Wiley Online Library. It was published in August of 2022. So this study was aerial imagery of fin whales 
feeding in Antarctica, and it was taken via helicopter and drone-supported cameras in 2018. So they were trying to get um, as good of topside body shots of the whales to assess their scar patterns, basically. So they were able to document 109 fin whales and analyze the photos. 62 of those animals had conspicuous marks on their body. And what they were considering conspicuous marks were circular white spots, pale patches, dents, scars, skin anomalies, de and deformation or disfigurements. The most common mark on the whales was circular white spots. Those are from cookie cutter shark bites. Uh, and that was documented on 51 whales. The next most prevalent was dents on 20 different whales. Those are also actually indicators of cookie cutter shark bites. Uh, the next was scars on 24 whales. Those could have come from a variety of sources, pale patches on 13 whales, deformation on two whales, and one anomaly. And then, and you can like look at all these pictures of what they're talking about. There's tables describing, describing typical uh, sources of those scars and then uh, more explanation of what they documented. Uh, 42 of the whales had heavy diatom coloration, so like a yellowish color on their skin, and some whales had marks in more than one category. So overall, the marks revealed little indication of severe impacts on fin whales. They did not detect any fresh injuries on any of the whales, and the scars were detected, the scars detected were mainly small and minor, so nothing indica indicative of severe trauma like ship strike deep cuts by fishing gear, so severe entanglement, anything like that. The largest scar is record is depicted in figure four, which you can look at in the paper. I'll link out on the Facebook comments of uh, the post about the episode. Um, it was likely a minor injury of unknown origin. It's like one lin like jagged linear deeper cut. One fin whale had two linear scars on the back perpendicular to the body axis, which could indicate interaction with fishing gear. However, the scars suggest superficial abrasions rather than deep cuts. You can look at all the details in the paper itself if you want to. Um, so examples from cetaceans in high-use marine areas show a completely different spectrum of injuries and demonstrate that signs of severe tra trauma can be quite common in cetacean populations, and that's not what they're observing with the fin whales feeding around Elephant Island. Uh, so Fin whales are considered to be a predominantly offshore species, which in general makes them less prone to human impacts, but they still um, are not immune. So uh, most human impact type threats to cetaceans do happen in coastal areas, but offshore activities like fishing and global shipping um, do pose a risk. Fin whales are among the most regular victims of ship strike worldwide, and the ship strike rates are definitely a reason for a concern. The kind of an example of how different it can look, um, like whales in the Mediterranean and the Gulf of Maine have way more scarring that's anthropogenic sourced. Uh, like in the Gulf of Maine, they have really high rates of entanglement in fishing gear. And the uh, with kind of using that as like a contrasting observation, the fin whales gathering at the Antarctic Peninsula have more pristine skin condition. This suggests that the animals do not migrate through heavily used marine areas after their feeding season in the Antarctic. Um, 
there is some discussion about those pale patches. That's one of the marks that they like made a category for, but they're not sure like what exactly the pale patches are. Are they healing cookie cutter shark bites that are not clean like the other ones? Are they something else, some sort of disease, some sort of parasite thing, something else entirely? It's not really clear, um, but there is some discussion about it. If you're interested, you can check it out. Uh, cookie cutter shark bites also lead the authors of this paper to come to a similar conclusion about the range of fin whales as the pre previous paper. So going um, further up than 41 degrees south, seeing that they're in tropical and subtropical waters because they're getting these cookie cutter shark bites. So they must be using areas uh, that are much warmer and much further north than their feeding habitat and they're in the range of those sharks. So two papers going about it in different ways, but kind of coming to similar conclusions. So the reason why I brought all this up um, to look at like the human caused threats to fin whales and where fin whales are going is because a very similar species that uses a similar habitat has been documented to really struggle with shipping traffic. Fin whales and blue whales do often feed in similar places and are both um, animals that were heavily exploited during whaling. And so just because we're not seeing evidence of a clear threat for fin whales doesn't mean it's not there. Uh, they spend so much time offshore and they're so poorly studied at this point and they could use so much space in the ocean that like we really have to consider like the threat level is probably a lot higher than we realize. So this article is from CNN. It's called Blue Whales End Up as Ocean's Roadkill in the Crowded Waters of Patagonia. So it starts off with an interview with Frederick Toro Cortez, a wildlife veterinarian at Santo Tomas University. And he's doing a blue whale necropsy. The whale died from ship strike. And the same week that they interviewed him and like documented that necropsy for a series called Patagonia Life on the Edge of the World, two other whales washed ashore dead. Um, this area of Chile actually averages about four ship strike deaths a year, um, but they had three like in the span of a week. So blue whales do feed in the nutrient-rich waters off the fjords of Chile and Patagonia. And the International Whaling Commission has identified this area as one of 12 regions with an at-risk population of whales worldwide. The IWC has also documented over 1,200 ship strike deaths worldwide since 2007. So if you average that out per year, that's 80 ship strike deaths per year. And that's just the ones that are documented and reported by the IWC. Like, and we don't even know like how to estimate the percentage of how many we're capturing versus how many we're missing. The inner seas of Chile and Patagonia are actually really heavily trafficked. I didn't realize this till I read this article, but industrial salmon farming is really prevalent in the area. They're actually one of the leading exporters of salmon, farmed salmon in the world, and they export a lot of it to the United States. Uh, not only do those farms take up space in that nutrient-rich habitat that the whales use, those farms need supplies delivered to them. They need fish transported in and out of them. And so there's a lot of boat traffic and not a lot of space there. And because it's such a narrow area and it's like such a specific route, like you can't change the shipping lanes 
in those fjords like you can with other offshore shipping traffic. Um, another researcher that they interviewed was Susanna Buchanan, an, ocean, an oceanographer at the University of Concepcion in Chile, um, which has been working, she's been working on blue whale acoustics to help monitor the whales and how much they overlap with shipping traffic. A uh, satellite tagging program was um, published to show how much traffic a blue whale interacts with. Um, and it's that, I don't know if you guys remember that uh, kind of semi-viral video that went around last year. And it's like the blue dot and streak that's moving around in the water around all these uneven land masses. And then these red dots and streaks are moving around and it's all the ships and you can see the whale and how close it is to the ships all the time. That's from this work in this area. So one blue whale moved in an area of a thousand boats is basically what that um, graphic was showing. So to reduce the risk of ship strike, one of the things that Buchanan is working on is to develop a warning system for waters off Chilean Patagonia that will warn ship traffic to the presence of whales. And they're doing this through a, a moored buoy system that's equipped with hydrophones to capture whale song and transmit um, that as an alert to mariners and um, kind of give them an estimate of how likely they are to encounter whales on their route, allowing them to slow down or reroute if possible. Uh, this is similar to programs that have been deployed off the coast of New England for right whales, and this is currently also being tested in California. So all that to say, man, we still got a lot to learn. <laughs> um, we have a lot to learn about these animals. We do need to protect them, um, not only because they're just amazing creatures, they're the largest creatures on our planet, but also because our oceans would be in dire straits without them, right? Like whales support the ecosystem, which ends up having ramifications that echo across the world for humans, whether it's food from fisheries, it's carbon capture, it's, um, you know, better ocean ecosystems in general for recreation. It's really kind of important to our survival to have healthy whale populations because they make the world go round. They help garden the ocean, cycle the nutrients, and get our marine food webs to function the way that they do. We already have almost lost these species because of whaling. And now we're just like continuing the slow burn as these animals are trying to recover. We're putting obstacles in the water. We're making a lot of noise. We are shipping things across the world and not really caring that these animals are trying to feed in the middle of a superhighway. And so, you know, maybe one thing you can do is know where your seafood comes from. I had no idea that much farm salmon came from Chile. I mean, I don't really eat it. So I just never really followed the path of like where it comes from. But seafood especially can have a very complicated journey to get to your plate. And if you don't know where it's coming from, you could be contributing to the problem. So you can't make the best choice possible for yourself unless you have all the information. And I will give you a heads up that, you know, if you're trying to source your seafood, the it's tricky because mislabeling happens a lot, but also they have complicated journeys. Like you're eating an Atlantic farm salmon 
on the west coast of the United States, but it actually came from Chile. Like, that's a lot of information to try and sift through. Um, it, I always think it's better if you know the person that caught the fish. Wild caught, if you knew who had caught it. That's the easiest way, direct ocean to table. If you're going to eat seafood at all, I mean, that's your choice. And, you know, there are guides out there like Monterey Seafood Watch Program. Um, there are people trying to enforce labeling, like um, I think one of them is called MSC. And so at the end of the day, like, I think you need to be an informed consumer and not just seafood, but this example is seafood considering the story. So um, that's my little piece of advice for all of you. And then the whale of the week, I think, should be fin whale. I mean, it's my favorite baleen whale. They're pretty awesome and very mysterious. I love that the second largest animal on the planet, we still don't know where they go to make more of themselves, <laughs> which is pretty awesome. So thanks everyone. If you made it this far, really, really appreciate you. Um, these last couple episodes haven't been as long as our uh, normal ones. So hopefully a little bit easier bite-sized information to uh, listen to the last couple of weeks. Although we do love our long episodes too especially when they're with guests. Sometimes you can't get us to stop talking. So anyways, thanks so much. Um, enjoy the rest of your week and we will uh, be out with another episode soon. Thanks. Bye.